Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Today, World Footprints will follow the path of a music revolution, will explore all things travel, and will visit an Echo Fashion Boutique store. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to World Footprints, the leading voice in socially conscious and responsible travel and lifestyle. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're going to embark on an exciting journey today. Indeed we are, dear. Today on World Footprints, we will follow the path of a music revolution with the mother of Afrobeat, Sandra Isidore, whose voice even influenced Africa's revolutionary voice, Fela Kuti. By the time I met Fela, I had enough knowledge about our ancestral past to be able to convey it to him, which I thought he already had, being that he was African, of course. When the Wall Street Journal identifies you as a good source of information, people listen. Our friend Everett Potter publishes such a site, the Everett Potter Travel Report, and he joins us to talk about all things travel. Generally speaking, when I'm, I'm taken out of my comfort zone, that's when, when travel becomes transformative for me. Um, I had an experience like that. Every once in a while, we'll discover a business that is leaving a legacy of positive footprints. Today we'll introduce you to Catherine Lamone of Carbon, D.C., an Echo Fashion high-end boutique located in our nation's capital. For a designer or a brand, it's using a type of eco-friendly material. And eco-friendly material meaning like choosing to use 100% organic cotton, soy, bamboo, milk. I mean, there's, <laughs> it's so cool what you can turn <laughs> into a fabric these days. Visit us and connect with us at worldfootprints.com. You're listening to World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Sandra Isidore is an iconic music legend who has lent her voice to advance humanitarian causes. Known as a mother of Afrobeat, Sandra helped shape the music and the message of Africa's revolutionary genius, Fela Kuti. Sandra's influence was so profound that she has even been more immortalized in Fela's autobiography and Broadway hit play, Fela. Sandra continues to fight for the human rights of others with her mic, and we're happy that she's taking time uh, off the, uh, the, the front lines to join us today. Sandra, welcome to World Footprints. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, I was so excited to see you at the opening night production of Fela in D.C., and I was trying my best to get to you and, and missed you in the midst of the crowd. But what an exciting uh, thing. Was that the first time you've seen the, the production? No, it's not the first time. Um, uh, I saw it off-Broadway, on-Broadway, and I'm happy to say in D.C., <laughs> Well, so you helped kind of launch the, the U.S. tour of this uh, phenomenal musical. I mean, it's very, very powerful, I must say. Yes, well, you know, um, it was my birthday weekend, and it was in Washington, D.C., so I just had to be there. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> now, for, for those who haven't seen the, the production, you're portrayed as a central influencing figure in the life and music of the late Fela Kuti. Take us through those early days. What 
was the the cultural climate in the U.S. at that time compared to Nigeria? Here in the U.S., it was um, a period of awakening. Um, Blacks in America were fighting back because they were starting to see the inequalities, not only the inequalities, um, you know, at that time, Martin Luther King had started a movement. Um, then there was the uh, Honorable Elijah Muhammad, who were who was bringing people into the Nation of Islam. And then there was Malcolm X, who was a great influence in my life. And then they they had the Black Student Unions. They had the Panther Party. So that was the climate at the time. Um, because you could just look around and see blatant inequalities. Although I was very young at the time, I would hear the adults whispering. My, my parents tried to hide everything from me. Mm-hmm. See, I never knew about racism in the South. Um, it wasn't until we moved, when I was a child, my parents moved into an all-white neighborhood that I started seeing the differences, and the differences was pointed out to me by the children in the neighborhood. Although we played together and we enjoyed each other's company, but, you know, if we had a disagreement, they would express the words of their parents. And that's when I started to look at myself and see myself differently. Now, where, where, where was it you grew up? In Los Angeles. Okay. Okay. I grew up in Los Angeles. Um, um, I must say I had a very beautiful childhood because the area that we moved in, it was, it was rural at that time. So there were a lot of ponds and cows and horses, and I loved it. I, I, you know, I had a beautiful childhood, you know, and one of my favorite things was going out there playing with the frogs. <laughs> <laughs> so you're a little tomboy growing up, I take it. Yeah, doing dangerous things. When I think about some of the things we we did as children, I was saying, wow, we were just blessed. But um, I had a very beautiful childhood, but it was that childhood that made me aware of a difference. And um, even though I, I was made aware of the difference, my parents never discussed at any time about racism in the South. I just only heard them talk about Martin Luther King. Um, and I was around six years old then, and, you know, I, I, could, I, I would hear them whispering, but nobody ever told me anything. It wasn't until, I think, after the, the, the Watts riot that it was when my cousin Aubrey came, and my cousin Aubrey was part of the Panther Party. And some of the party members would come to my parents' home. And again, I started hearing. And so then I went in search of on the underground. And then going in search of on the underground is when I started to find out all of the the truths in, uh, about American history, black American history. And I became angry. I was very angry. And I was angry with my parents. I was angry with the church because I'm born into a very religious family. I was very angry. And, um, um, and at that time, also listening to Malcolm X pass the ballot or the bullet. So that was like, um, you know, the motto. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't believe in turning the other cheek because I felt like we had turned the other cheek too many times. But 
and, and, and it so, has a growth and work in progress. So this timeline was, so we were actually, uh, what you're describing was your experience in the um, 60s? 60s? Okay. Mm-hmm, late 60s. And how did your paths cross with Fela? How did you come well, to him? What made my path cross was from the age of six, um, when I noticed the difference, and whenever I turned on the TV and I saw, uh, you know, I never saw any positive black images on television. I, I didn't see them anywhere. So um, at that point, I said, well, I have to, um, I, I must meet an African. This is when, as I evolved, I, I got to the point where I figured the only way I was going to get the truth to really know about my my ancestors was I needed to relate to Africa because I knew that that's my ancestral grounds. So that's what made me interested in meeting an African. I wanted to meet an African. So I put that out there in the universe, and as it goes around and around and around, by the time I was in high school, I started to meet African exchange students that were here studying. And it, it, it went from there to, you know, dancing with the Sawaba African Dance Theater to meeting Juno Lewis through the African Dance Theater, which eventually led me to meeting Fela Anikulakpo Kuti. But he wasn't Anikulakpo then. He was Fela Ransom Kuti when I met him. So, by the time I met Fella, I had enough knowledge about our ancestral past to be able to convey it to him, which I thought he already had, being that he was African. Of course, he knew all of these things, right? But I was wrong. So, was it surprising to you, though, to hear about the uh, the challenges, really, uh, in in uh, in African nations, uh, specifically Nigeria, and you know the the dictatorship um, at the in the abuse at the hands of fellow Africans? Was that surprising to you? Um, yes, today it is. You know. Um, because that's what you call black-on-black crime. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, it is. And that, again, is out of ignorance. And that, again, is, when I think about it, it's the same psychology that was used here in America, which goes back to the Willie Lynch syndrome. And I always said what colonialism did in Africa is far worse than what slavery did in America. Mm-hmm. Because in Africa, they are still struggling even today. Have you, in the course of your lifetime, and certainly uh, back in the early days when uh, you met uh, Fela and, and began even your own career kind of as an, a revolutionary artist, uh, did you have a chance to travel uh, to any country in Africa, Nigeria specifically? Uh, yes. And what was that? like for you because i i've heard uh from many african americans who have traveled to africa that they never found the acceptance that they went there looking for well so that's that's not my experience my experience see 
I also believe wherever you go, you take yourself with you. So if you take narrow-mindedness with you, that's what you will meet. Me, I went with an open mind, and I went with love, and that's what I was greeted with. Um, lots of love, and, you know, I, I just always had a positive experience in Nigeria, not only Nigeria, in, in, in Ghana, in Togo, all the countries that I've traveled to in Africa, I have been greeted with lots of love and respect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, I have heard that from my own uh, fellow people, um, the ones that have uh, created differences. But it's their mindset, you know? It's their mindset. It, to me, what you bring to the table is what you get. You, that's what you pull out. So if you bring in negativity, what do you think you're going to pick up? This has been a progression in life for me. I went from past the ballot or the bullet to um, the, the thought of turning the other cheek or the lifestyle of turning the other cheek. And turning the other cheek does not ne necessarily mean that um, you are um, necessarily passive. Basically, um, violence brings on more violence. There's no end there. So we must be loving enough because we're all in this pot together. At the end of the day, we're all in here together. So even, you know, even when you look at the laws, the laws that were written, maybe at the time that they wrote those laws, they did it to discriminate against one group. But when you balance that law out, it affects everyone. At this point in my life, I'm above and beyond the, the prejudice, the biases, and the negativities. Now, I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. I'm still learning. But at the end of the day, we're all human, and, and we must connect. We must learn how to connect. And in Africa, you know, just like what I would say the Western world used Africa, in my opinion, um, used Africa as a dumping ground. And see, for many years, many have prospered, or when I say many, the Western world has prospered from the exploitation of Africa. But guess what? Now look at what's happening in the Western world. We're all connected. You're well known as a, a revolutionary artist. That's, that's a term that I just created this, not too much long ago <laughs> um, and you, you take your you know you've used your gift uh, of music to really spread awareness about social issues and I know that you're you're taking on a cause uh, or you're fighting on behalf of blacks in Cuba but talk about your decision and your evolution as a revolutionary artist and the acceptance that you've received both in this country and abroad uh, and then, you know, talk about what's happening in Cuba that has sparked 
this passion in you? Well, see, I was really, um, really heartbroken because I always looked up to Fidel. And most black Americans here, they see Fidel Castro as a hero. But then when you meet the people from Cuba, the white, the black, the um, the homosexual uh, community from Cuba, then you you learn about the the prejudices and the inequalities and the human rights violations. And I was shocked. And I found out that Fidel was not that hero that I thought he was. So that's why I wrote the song, um, Tell the Truth. And, and it was my way of expressing when I'm hurt and I feel hopeless, you know, I, when I go to that point of hopelessness, which is not good, I, I write and then I go and I sing and then it makes me feel better. And that's how, you know, I do my part. It, it's a form of releasing. Um, and, and, and just like I wrote that song about um, um, Fidel Castro, I also wrote a song entitled Family, a very beautiful song. Well, it's my song, so of course I'm going to sing but um, others, too, have told me that they enjoy the song. And it's entitled Family. And how that song came about, once again, it has to do with differences. And the trial is going on in California right now uh, about the two young men that, I was, uh, that, that m inspired me to write the song. These were children. And one child um, was, um, I guess you would say, his orientation was different than um, the other young child in school. And the child whose orientation was different was murdered in the classroom. And I was saying, what a loss, you know, to both families. Um, then there was another situation. Um, it was gang affiliation um, with the red and blue rag. And, and, and another young man who had just received a scholarship, I believe it was to Stanford University, um, he was gunned down in the street because he wasn't part of the gang affiliation. And it, that week or in that time period, it was just painful to me. So I wrote the song entitled Family because I saw myself um, as the mother of both of those children, you know. Um, and I saw the father. And once again, we're all connected. And who are we to judge? Who are we to judge? And who are we to take what you cannot give back? Now, where, where can people hear your music? Are you still performing? And, and how can we find out, uh, listen to your music or find out your, uh, your performance schedule? Well, my music right now is in the kiosk with the musical. It is traveling with the musical. Um, the CD that um, is there is entitled uh, Nigeria. Um, uh, CD Baby, you know, everything has changed in the industry now. Um, it can be purchased online, CD Baby. And then I do have some free downloads. Like I, I also have a song entitled Healthcare for Profit, which has to do with right here in America. And it's, it's really um, with what's going on now, the climate of what's going on in this country. And just yesterday... I was given more training, and when I see the exploitation of America and the loopholes of America, 
and how we, the middle class, the taxpayers, um, how we're being, uh, I would say, strangled hmm. by greed is, it, you know, it's just, it's, it's just unacceptable to me. And I also did a song entitled Greedy Rulers. Um, one of the things that um, I have come to see, the things that Fella talked about in Nigeria, or the things that were happening in Nigeria, which, what, 20, 30 years ago, that I, I didn't think was, you know, I thought it was a Nigerian problem, has reached the shores of America now. And we must stop. We have to stop or we're going to destroy ourselves. You know, we're going to destroy this beautiful, wonderful country. America is a beautiful country. Mm -hmm. We have good laws. But a few greedy people, corporate greed, and just greedy people in general, thinking of the one instead of thinking of the many and the suffering that you cause to many, you know, it's just out of hand. Yeah, and, you know, and we see a lot of that being in the, the seat of um, government power here in D.C. You know, there's, uh, I, I can't tell you how many times uh, during a week, on a week, uh, you know, a newscast, we hear about some element of government corruption. And uh, and so, you know, I, I, I think you're you're correct. Uh, that the elements of corruption, uh, the the greed, the the power, lust for power, um, you know, some of those elements may have probably been here since this country's creation, uh, but they seem to uh, to be coming at a head. Or you know, I sense another song coming from this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's so much, and, and 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 you know, it's to the point. You know, as a child, um, there was the saying, "Ignorance is." And when you don't know something, you're happy, you know. It's when you start to become aware. And when you look around you and you see all these ugly things happening, and I see a lot of it, and it's like, oh, how do we fix it? You know, because I am an optimistic person. I want to fix it. And I think I'm going to use a story Um about the you know the young child um, who was interrupting the adults when they were speaking, and the child just kept coming. So the adults was like, okay, we've got to do something to get this little boy, or you know, keep him busy so we can finish our discussion. So what they did, they gave the the little boy the map of the world and they said well you know this will keep him busy for for some time by giving him the map of the world but the little boy came back in less than a minute and they wanted to know well how did you put the world together so quickly and the child told them well daddy don't you see on the other side of the map is the face of the man he said if you put the man right the world will be right so Huh. That's, you know, that's that's where I'm coming from. I and it begins that. with each one of us. And I'd like to quote Michael Jackson on this one when he said, the man in the mirror, 
once we correct ourselves, it's up to us. It's an individual thing as well. If we get ourselves right, you know, you don't have to be religious or anything, but one of the things that I have found from religion is um, the road map that was left, a good road map, which was, you know, they talked about Jesus being the perfect man. Well, if each day we strive to be or to live in perfection, and you don't have to be, you know, a, a, a religious person or um, uh, adhere to any particular religious group, why not just try living right? Get yourself right. And, and, and live by the laws of treating someone the way you want to be treated. Is that asking too much? Not at all. And Sandra, I mean, it's been a true blessing to have you on our show today. And I, I just thank you for the time. I thank you for the message. I thank you for the work that you're doing really to raise awareness about uh, very serious social uh, concerns like human rights, basic human rights. Uh, thank you so much, Sandra Isidore, for joining us today on World Footprints. Thank you, Tanya. And I love that name, World Footprints. <laughs> Let's leave some good ones. <laughs> Coming up, the Wall Street Journal's pick for a great travel source. Travel journalist Everett Potter talks with us about all things travel. Generally speaking, when I'm, I'm taken out of my comfort zone, that's when, when travel becomes transformative for me. Uh, I had an experience like that. Next, as World Footprints Radio continues. Hi, this is Paul Harris from uh, Southampton, England. We're once again here in New Orleans. I think it's my 35th or 40th, 40th time, and it's always a pleasure to come back. We always bring our, our musicians with us, and it's a great pleasure to uh, meet uh, our friends from World Footprints, and uh, wish you all the success with your show, and uh, looking forward to seeing you again sometime. Hi, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. A few years ago, we decided to leave our respective legal practices to live a more purposeful travel life and help others leave positive footprints. World Footprints was born and was quickly recognized for its award-winning journalism. We've covered events from the Olympics to a Titanic expedition, and we've discussed conservation, environmental, and public diplomacy initiatives. Join us for award-winning radio and visit our website, worldfootprints.com, for daily travel deals and comprehensive travel information. Hello, my name is Minnie Johnson. I'm from Ann Arbor, Michigan. I really enjoy listening to the World Footprint radio show whenever I have an opportunity to do so. I've gained so much information from the show. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Everett Potter is the editor and publisher of Everett Potter's Travel Report, an online resource that received a positive mention by the Wall Street Journal as a source for finding great travel values. Everett has been traveling professionally for over two decades and has written for a number of top travel publications in the country. We first met Everett in Whistler in 2007, and uh, it's been a long time, but we finally got him on our show, and I'm happy to uh, welcome you, Everett, to World hey, Footprints. Hey, how are you? Good, thank you. I mean, it, it has been a long time. 2007 seems golly. Yeah, it's a long time. <laughs> Ian and I are corporate escape artists, but 
travel journalism has been your life. What inspired you to pursue a career in travel journalism? You know, I think like a lot of people who do it, um, it's, it's sort of, just sort of happened, I think, in a way. I had a chance to uh, go to China in 1984 um, for a magazine. I was already writing, but this was a, an official travel assignment, and I ended up going to China in 84 to an area called uh, Shandong, Shandong Province, and uh, ended up coming back and doing the story I was sent to, uh, to write, but I also uh, managed to pitch and sell a story to the Washington Post. So uh, <laughs> I was off great guns at that point. <laughs> so, so, so you kind of, uh, I mean, you were being paid to, to write, but you kind of fell into travel journalism? Well, in terms of, in terms of that, yeah, I was writing novels in my garret on the Upper West Side in New York, and uh, I had a friend who was doing this, and I thought it was the coolest job in the world. And in many ways it is, and it still is. You know, a, a lot of people, when we tell people, you know, we're travel journalists, uh, you know, they think automatically, oh, it, you know, very glamorous, very sexy, right. um, and it's fun. We love to travel, we love to explore, but it's not as glamorous as people might think. Would you agree? No, it isn't. It isn't. Uh, it, the other side of being a, a journalist of any kind is, is the work that goes into actually being a journalist, to, to making deadlines constantly, to pitching and selling stories. Uh, or to, you know, working on uh, on a staff basis too, um, but yeah, there's a lot of hard work involved. And actually, you're not you're not on vacation as as many people seem to think. You're actually reporting a story one way or the other, or usually multiple stories. That's mm -hmm. how I've always worked. You've been traveling for well over two decades. What has been the most transformative travel experience you've had? Boy, that's a hard one to answer. I think I've had a number of them, and and. Uh, Generally speaking, when I'm, I'm taken out of my comfort zone, that's when when travel becomes transformative for me. Um, I had an experience like that when I was in Nepal about two years ago. Um, I had never been to Nepal, and I found it transformative. I also found it incredibly challenging, and I find that when when my, uh, all of my sensibilities are challenged one way or the other, um, that something good usually comes out of that. Uh, and another time was in Tibet. I was in, lucky to go to Tibet back in 1985 when it first opened to to press after uh, to journalists after being closed for quite a few years. And I found that experience mind-boggling. Uh, China was mind-boggling in 1984 um, to see a country that was just waking up. Basically, um, you were seeing scenes that were like something out of the Middle Ages in terms of, of, of how, the, how the country was working at that time. And, and so was it kind of a, a culture shock for you? Is that some of the challenge? There's, a, there's culture shock, yes, and you have to, um, but there's, there's a comfort shock, too, I think. You know, we, 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 we live here in the West, and we have our own uh, definition of what makes us comfortable, and to, to be thrown out of that and to know that there's no, not really a safety net Per se, and you're sort of left to your own devices. Um, I think it comes a transformative travel experience comes at you from from multiple angles. A question that we often get is, "What's your favorite travel destination?" And, and as you know, yeah. that's a hard question to to answer. But yeah, we have developed special affinities uh, for for certain places. You know, places that really resonate with sure. us. Have you uh, what? Destinations have you developed a special affinity for, if any? Well, it's funny. There are places where I would gladly go for a month. If you plucked me up out of my office here, just outside New York City, and 
put me in these places for a month, I'd be feel I'd feel at home, but I'd also feel um, delighted and and challenged too, and just happy to be there. And, and and many of them are cities. I mean, many of them are quite familiar cities. Um, like where? Paris, for example, mm-hmm. London, um, Vancouver, probably my favorite city in North America. Um, in South America, Rio de Janeiro, which I like very much. Uh, in Asia, I'd probably have to say uh, Hong Kong. I've always loved Hong Kong. So for me, these are places that, that I would gladly go back to and have gladly gone back to over and over again in my career. In traveling to these places, part of the, uh, you know, Part of what we try to communicate to people is to really immerse yourself. And in order to really appreciate uh, a destination, a culture, and immerse yourself in that culture, you really have to develop an understanding and respect for it as well. And so, you know, learning about other cultures and proper etiquette is, is, is an evolving learning experience. What has been the most insightful or embarrassing learning uh, experience you've had on the road? Oh, God, I have to think about the embarrassing one. Um, <laughs> but in terms of how I do it, in terms of what I'd like to do, I like to rent a, an apartment. Uh, if I'm going somewhere, it's great if you have the time to do this. But to rent an apartment in Paris is is so different from the experience of staying in a hotel in Paris, even if it's only for a week or two. Same is true with, with, with Rome or any any major city in the world, I find. is It's, it's terrific to, to become one of the locals in that way. Um, I find the same thing to be true in the countryside. I mean, if you're if you're staying in a little bed and breakfast someplace, it's one thing. But if you're actually renting a house and you have to interact with with local people on their level, in the sense of going to the market and, and going to uh, a village or a town and, and and having to deal with them, and preferably in another language, I find that to be a, a great experience. Mm-hmm. I, I'll have to think about the embarrassing moments. I'm sure there's been plenty, but none come immediately to mind. Uh, I uh, yeah, uh, unless you know it was from another traveler. I've I've traveled uh, places ever where um, uh, I've been embarrassed by the uh, behavior of some of our fellow citizens. Yes, all the time, <laughs> constantly. <laughs> I was trying constantly. to say that very nicely, but uh, yeah. <laughs> now you you've been writing also uh, for a number of years and. The internet has has had a profound effect on the way we learn about destinations um, sure. and how we book or travel even. Right. Uh, and I know you've written for a number of publications, uh, some that have probably since closed their doors. How have oh, you yeah. managed and adjusted through these changes? I just had to adapt. I, I, I really there's really no other way to put it. Um, um, <laughs> sink or swim, I guess. Uh, but I, I, I I've found that the internet really is, I have an affinity for it uh, in terms of web writing and web style. One of the publications I've been writing for lately is The Daily, which is only seen by subscription on iPads. Oh. So if you look at the, if you, you can go to a static shot, but for example, this past weekend I had the, the lead travel story on The Daily about Chicago, which happened to be about Chicago. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, and the focus was on on architecture, but there was some culture and food mixed in there. What's cool, of course, is that when you open the the lead page on the iPad, you can use your finger to spin 360 degrees through uh, uh, the new Mansueto Library on on the campus of the University of Chicago. And you get the same view as you would as if you were sitting there studying one of your textbooks. Um, It's extraordinary to see someone 
in this case the daily, actually use the iPad in a way that's not simply a reader, but takes advantage of some of the technology. So I found it personally. I found it very exciting. Um, I also find it exciting. I've created my own website, as you know, Everett Potter's Travel Report, and I've been doing that for about six years. And um, the entrepreneurial part of that uh, gives me a huge amount of satisfaction, even mm -hmm. if it's not. It's a different part of the brain than simply sitting down and writing. When we first met back in 2007, you were and continue to be very involved with adventure travel industry. That's right, yeah. Ha adventure travel, as other uh, segments of the travel um, industry have, have changed, but how has adventure travel itself changed throughout the years? Um, I think in some ways it's become easier, quote-unquote, to take an adventure travel trip. In other words, it, it used to require a fair amount of work on your part to find an outfitter in, say, northern Iceland, or uh, if you really had this hankering to go to Patagonia, there was maybe one or two places that, that you might find readily find online or through a guidebook where you might stay, but what's what's happened is it's become far easier to have those travel experiences. There's a lot more outfitters out there who are uh, who have packaged them, and that doesn't, that doesn't make them bad experiences because they're packaged. It just makes them easier to to access. But that said, I think that that you know at the outer limits of adventure travel, people are still pushing the envelope as much as they can. Mm -hmm. um, they want to do things, and, and a lot of that involves fairly uh, vigorous physical exploration and/or exercise, one way or the other. And but you know, adventure travel uh, has many different faces. Yeah, bird watching could be considered an adventure sure. travel yeah. Uh, yeah. experience. Um, and I know, you know, one of the, the the things that we try to share with people is when you're booking with an uh, an outfitter, a travel supplier of any type, do your homework. Um, in a lot of cases, it's best to book through uh, a travel agent. Um, Ian and I, at the time we met, we actually owned a travel agency, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, and I know. As an attorney, you know, I, I did my due diligence. I vetted uh, the suppliers I worked for and because, you know, some outfitters have really come under fire uh, for being very irresponsible. Um, you know, there's there was an incident, I think, a couple of years ago where some climbers, um, and I can't remember for the life of me where they were, but climbers were um, climbing up, uh, and when they reached the summit... Um, they actually carved their names into Boulder, mm -hmm. and the area that they reached was actually an old burial ground. Wow. And, and so there have been instances where some adventure travel enthusiasts have really come under fire. Is there anything being done in the industry, though, that helps people vet proper organizations and kind of uh, helps protect uh, local communities and, and resources? You know, I think you can read um, uh, about certain companies online. Certainly you can go to their websites. You can see if they're affiliated with the Adventure Travel Trade Association, the ATTA, which I've been on the board of for, for years now. Um, but I think one of the best things you can do is actually, if you're thinking of a trip, to contact the company and have them put you in touch with people who've gone on that, that specific trip. Those people should be able to give you a pretty good idea of what your experience is going to be like. And that's going to include how ethical this company is. Um, the companies that, that keep winning the awards from Outside Magazine or National Geographic for their uh, trip, their, their, their stellar trips to wherever, Africa, South America, Asia, are usually 
pretty a pretty safe bet. I mean, these are so-called blue chip companies, even though some of them are younger and, you may, and fairly new, and you may not have heard of them. But they've they've established themselves fairly quickly in in in, in that regard, and you could feel pretty confident about about going with them. Um, you have to remember too that some of the companies that are out there that are so-called adventure travel companies, companies like. Um, Myths and Mountains and Wildland Adventures have a huge cultural component uh, within their, their so-called adventure trips. You might spend 10 days in Costa Rica, but during that time you might be meeting with local families, you are learning about local customs, you're experiencing the local culture, and they're not going to do anything to jeopardize that, in part because they don't want to and in part because it's their business. So um, I think it, it, you really have to do some research, as you say, due diligence indeed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And where are you off to next, Everett? I'm actually going to the Adventure Travel Conference in um, uh, Chiapas, Mexico, in about uh, 10 days. And it's a part of Mexico I've never been. It's a part of Mexico most Americans haven't been to, I, I, I would venture to, to guess. Uh, it's the southernmost state. It's close to the border with uh, Guatemala. And uh, it, it apparently has more indigenous tribes than any other region of Mexico. And also amazing coffee, which I'm looking forward to, <laughs> um, which should be great. But uh, in all the, uh, San Cristobal, the, uh, the, the, the city we're having this in, is, is known for, uh, for being one of the most beautiful and, and well-preserved colonial towns, colonial cities in Mexico. So that's going to be a treat as well. Oh, well, please uh, give our friends at ATTA, Shannon and Doyle and Chris, uh, the whole guys, uh, all of our regards. And uh, I will sorry, do that. I'm going to miss you guys this year. Uh, but uh, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Tanya, very much. If you'd like to read the latest Everett Potter's Travel Report, we'll have a link on our website. That it's everettpotterstravelreport.com. Everett, thank you again for joining us. Thank you very much. Echo Fashion is growing in popularity and consciousness for men and women, according to Carbon DC owner Catherine Lamone. For a designer or a brand, it's using a type of eco-friendly material. And eco-friendly material, I mean, like, two things. You use 100% organic cotton, soy, bamboo, milk. I mean, there's... <laughs> It's so cool what you can turn into a fabric these days. We'll learn more as World Footprints continues. Hi, I'm Nancy from Lansing, Michigan. I'm here in New Orleans, and I enjoy listening to the World Footprints Radio. For the latest and last-minute travel deals, visit the WorldFootprints.com travel portal to find exclusive non-published sales on travel. Our dynamic travel deals page updates daily with the latest sales from our partners. You can't find these deals anywhere else, and we've seen sales for $9 per night for hotels and $49 airline tickets. So stop by WorldFootprints.com to see where you can go for less. Also, make sure you visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services. World Footprints Radio is an award-winning broadcast and leader in socially conscious travel. Hosts Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick bring you entertaining and informative interviews with well-known celebrities, newsmakers, authors and industry professionals. From environmental leaders like Bobby Kennedy Jr. and David Rockefeller Jr., to conservationists like actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns. Tune in to hear travel journalism at its best. 
visit unique places from around the world and stop by the worldfootprints.com website for comprehensive travel information including special daily travel deals. Hi, I'm Patricia Elsie from Mother's Restaurant, and I'm sitting here with the famous World Footprints radio people, Tanya and Ian, <laughs> and they love our cooking, and they're really enjoying the food, and I love them, and I hope they come back again. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Echo fashion has come a long way since the 1990s, and it seems to be growing beyond just being the flavor of the month. Boutique shops that promote sustainable fashion are now doing more than just green window dressings, and we found such a store in Washington, D.C. Carbon, D.C., is an upscale boutique that offers sustainable clothing, shoes, and accessories for men and women that are produced by independent designers. Catherine Limon is the owner of Carbon DC, and she joins us today to dispel the perception that sustainable fashion is just a burlap bag wrapped with a rope. Catherine, welcome. Thank you for having me. I've attended some fashion shows recently that showcased only Echo Couture, and I've interviewed a few designers in the area that are committed to using only natural materials. But as a retailer, when did you start to notice a shift in paradigm towards environmentally friendly fashion? Well, I actually am brand new to the retail world. Uh, my background is in communications, and I leaped at the chance to take over the boutique um, in March of this year, and the store focused on uh, men's and women's shoes, and my concept was to provide, be a source for sustainably made goods, uh, really because I found that it was a gap in the area. Um, there are some great boutiques that do cater to um, a lot of local and eco-friendly designers. And I wanted to um, bring in more of a luxury factor, if you will, and really show how eco-clothing can be fashion-forward and innovative um, in the type of materials that they're using and in the way that they're using them. I admire you because you recently acquired uh, Carbon DC, as you mentioned, just a few months ago. And in the economy that we're experiencing and, you know, you... Uh, showcase luxury items, you really, really took a risk for, you know, an upscale market in a niche in a, in a niche market. What inspired you to do this? <laughs> Some may say a bit of foolishness. Others, uh, I'm just very passionate about it. Um, I never thought I'd see myself in the fashion industry, honestly, but having had experience uh, working for Nonprofits that focused on worker rights and child labor, uh, I just saw how the industry can make huge strides in creating a product that was that had a low impact on the environment and really strive to protect worker rights. And it just seemed like the eco movement embraces that. And I wanted to show customers that um, that the product out there can be, again, just as luxurious and just as beautiful and, hey, added value, it was, again, made with these principles in mind. Um, 
So for me, it's more than a store. It's really about showing how the industry can be responsible, but yet it does take the consumer to demand that as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there is that educational component. There's hopefully uh, a fostering of appreciation for innovation of this kind and people to really think about how they're investing their money. And given where we've been the last couple of years, I hope people are choosing to invest in their community by supporting local, by supporting local designers, by um, investing in a product that they know is going to last them a long time. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's better for their wallet. It's better for the environment. And I want to be a conduit for that. Carbon DC supports ethical fashion as well, and you alluded to that uh, when you discussed human rights. Can you elaborate a little bit more on on the concept of ethical fashion? Yeah, I, I think it's, um, I like to, in, in just in broad terms, um, there's a huge spectrum on the on how responsible you can be, if you will. Um, for some, it could, for a designer or a brand, it's using a type of eco-friendly material. And eco-friendly material, I'm meaning like choosing to use 100% organic cotton, soy, bamboo, milk. I mean, there's, <laughs> it's so cool what you can turn <laughs> into a fabric these days. Um, to ensuring that they, the workers that they hire in factories um, are allowed to uh, unite, that, um, have, that work in fair conditions, that they have strong monitoring programs, that ensure that their factories are being ad- adhering to a code of conduct, to designers that are just being more thoughtful and, and operate from a no-waste policy. Um, getting back to slow fashion, where it's not this drive to produce in volume, but really take the time to create something that is unique and thoughtfully made. and. It's hard to do all of that, and I, mm. and so that's why I like to think of it as more F, just in broader terms, where someone, if you can just make an effort doing something along that spectrum, you are definitely contributing to the greater good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for myself, the store is really striving to be a green business. I operate off of 100% wind power through the Washington Gas Energy Saver Program, I recycle everything under the sun, and I'm hopefully I like to be able to outfit the store in LED lighting. We're getting there. <laughs> things that I love to be able to do more, but you know, just you know, with the, another retailers, they'll tell you that you know, of course, it's always the bottom line. You know, what can you afford to do? But I know that in the long run, it's going to be better for. Well, I mean, you're you're certainly walking the talk with you know your um, sustainable operation and and your focus uh, on you know the the types of designers that you uh, you bring in. And I read an article recently that praised the movement towards sustainable fashion for even saving wildlife populations, um, specifically you know alligators, crocodiles, and caimans. You know, no longer are those their skins you know sought after, and and I think. You know, there's movements towards going using more natural fabric, not the skin of animals with natural materials, but that you know addresses uh, 
uh, or challenges uh, conservation issues. So, mm-hmm. um, but you know, this is uh, this is certainly an important issue that that we've been following as a sustainable um, media company. And uh, and so I truly applaud your your efforts. Talk about some of the designers you're featuring and the various items that you're showcasing, including works of art. You also have an art gallery in your store too. I do. Well, I'm really creating a green lifestyle, uh, if you will, and it starts with um, supporting local. Uh, all the artwork are from local artists. The subject matter may not be, but um, the the art, uh, who they are. Um, and, for example, my most recent exhibit, uh, one of the artists, she has worked for several years in refugee camps in Central Africa, and it's a retrospect of her time there, and it's extremely powerful. And plus, it's, it turned out where it's very brightly colored, which contrast greatly with my space because I have gray walls and so <laughs> it really brightens the room. Um, I carry in, uh, all my jewelry is local handcrafted uh, with the exception of two of the lines. Uh, one is a fair trade product from Columbia and the other um, is my mom. She wanted to contribute somehow so oh, I said, <laughs> enjoy. She's very crafty uh, and that line has been doing very well, I'm happy to say. Um, and then I have a local designer who produces in the U.S. She doesn't use necessarily um, an eco-friendly material in her entire collection, but again, she's local. She does very small volume. And then I do have right now a New York eco-designer, ADO Clothing, and she produces in New York, and she works primarily with 100% organic cotton. I have a couple of local shoe designers, and uh, one of the men's shoes that I currently carry that I'm really excited about, it's a Canadian socially responsible company called All A Birthday, and they produce in Africa as a way to promote economic development. Mm. And they're just gorgeous, custom-made leather shoes. And they are so socially responsible that they make sure that the cows that are eventually used for um, this product, of course the cows are used in its entirety, mm-hmm. um, have to be grass-fed, hormone-free. And, you know, it makes sense because then you're going to have a better product or better material, excuse me, to work with. Um, but it's just, you know, I've been doing this only for about seven, eight months, and uh, I have a laundry list of designers I would love to bring in. So I, I'm getting there. And what is your submission process? You know, if, if I, we have some designers listening now, um, how would they, how would they pitch, I guess, to you uh, to be included in your uh, in your boutique? What I I would love for them to have visited the website, get a sense of what the mission is, and if they feel like there's a shared um, spirit there. So we, I want to make sure that we're a good match, first and foremost. Um, and secondly, I, I welcome them to email me or call me and tell me a little bit about their collection, send me their lookbook, and we can start the conversation there. Eventually, I'll be able to go out and go to some showrooms, but um, I'm a one-person shop, so <laughs> and a lot of it is just online research, uh, so I really appreciate if uh, they want to come to me. That would be great. And how about artists? As well. Okay. Um, actually, the artists who I have 
have been carrying so far, um, well, a few have been friends, um, but a few have just walked in and noticed the art, and they said, oh, well, I do art. Would you like to see it? Like, sure. And it's worked out beautifully. Of course, those pieces are for sale, pieces that are... One of the things that most of your items, if not all, I think, are available online, too, for online purchase. Is that correct? Not yet. I'm a little ambivalent about it, to be honest, um, because I really like people to come in and touch and feel, um, and I want them to feel happy and confident with the purchase that they walk away with. Um, but I'm definitely not going to stop them. If they see something on the site, uh, call me, and we could do a transaction over the phone. But I think I am going to start looking into um, that aspect because I have to be, this is where I have to wear the business hat mm-hmm. and realize that people like to online shop, and I need to be available uh, and accessible for those customers too. Well, and it's always nice to make money when you're sleeping too. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a big plus. Very true. <laughs> I know some of your trunk shows have benefited nonprofit organizations, and most recently, I think one of our favorite organizations, uh, one that we've featured and uh, will soon partner with, Polaris Project, uh, was a benefactor from one of your events. Mm-hmm. How often do you hold such events, and how can the public learn more about when they're being held? And, and also, how do you select the charitable organizations that will benefit from uh, from an event? Well, I really believe in you want a product that makes you feel good and gives back. And I have asked the designers who have been featured in these trunk shows to consider donating proceeds or will do a donation drive for a charity of their choice. And I've worked... Um, I've raised funds for the Ocean Foundation, um, the Polaris Project, for um, DC Threads, um, for Miriam's Kitchen, and especially with the Polaris Project, I have for years been a member of Amnesty International and have learned about human trafficking, but it is shocking still to acknowledge the fact that it's in our own backyard and, mm-hmm. and it's very upsetting. So I, I hope that in some small way, this event um, drew some attention to them. Um, I have a upcoming trunk show on November 12th for one of my local accessories designers who is going to donate proceeds to the Alzheimer's Association. Um, so I, it, I ask them if they have a charity of choice that they like to support. If not, um, I will look in the community and and what those needs are and designate. And, um, and, and all the in- event information is on my website um, under the event tab. And the website is carbondc.com. And I invite all of our listeners to not only go online, but please go visit Catherine. She'd love the company and would certainly love to show off uh, all of the wonderful items that she has in store. Uh, Catherine Limon is the owner of Carbon DC in Washington, DC. And I thank you, my dear, so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the time. As a postscript, it is with sadness that we tell you that Carbon DC is closing its doors at the end of the year. We hope, however, this will be temporary. But Carbon DC is still open for business, and the store is having a fantastic Black Friday event. So stop by the Woodley Park location or visit online at carbondc.com. 
Thank you again for joining us today. And if you want more of World Footprints and everything that we have to offer, including travel deals and our library of archive shows, follow us, friend us, and connect with us at worldfootprints.com. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again next week. And until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada. Banff National Park. Natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps, that are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC. All rights reserved.